0: We just didn't know what we were getting into. It's like, oh, okay, we'll do this, which has largely been the ethos of DFDA is we're willing to figure it out. We're willing to step into that unknown. And that's kind of the motto of our workshop is that creativity is only valuable because you don't know what the outcome is going to be.
1: While teaching at Kent State University, Brian Burge and Jason Batcher patched a random plan to help them get their design students' attention. Build a website with 25 pieces of advice with a cheeky twist. The thing is, the website ended up going viral, and in less than three days it had 70,000 views. This catapulted them into launching a business with a risky way of being, built right into their name and at the core of their purpose. Why? Because they called it GFDA. Good effing design advice. GFDA is a US-based studio that helps organizations realize crazy dreams, accomplish impossible goals, and take creative risks. So it goes without saying that facing challenges head on is something they know very well. But this doesn't mean that it comes easy to them, but that they've always landed on their feet. In today's episode, I speak with owner and creative director Brian Burge about the roller coaster ride of his entrepreneurial journey, but how all of it eventually led GFDA to launching a hugely successful workshop, teaching the art of risk-taking. And you'll never guess who that first client was. A small heads up: With a business name like GFDA, it goes without saying that there are a few swear words in this episode. So maybe pop your headphones in for this one. I'm Zoe Weldon, and straight from Pittsburgh, and one of the most risky humans I've met. Here's Brian on "Didn't See That Coming." Hi, Brian. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Oh, so cool! Thanks so much for making the time. For sure. Now. This is always an interesting one to find out because we are all over the globe right now. Tell me, where are you right now?
0: I'm in my dining room in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the moment. It's not particularly glamorous, but it gets the job done.
1: I feel like everyone has a similar story right now. It's all about living rooms, kitchens, and bedrooms where they're doing all their work.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: I want to dig into really how you started the GFDA and your focus on creativity and risk-taking. But I just want to ask first, were you a kid that got into trouble? Were you a disruptor, like the kind of kid that would like glue coins to the ground and see if people would pick them up?
0: <laughs> Actually, no. I've always been pretty agreeable, I think. I think that's changed as i become an adult. I've become more and more disagreeable. But I wasn't a bad kid. Now, my colleague, Jason Richberg, who does a lot of the content writing for GFDA. Perhaps you can do a a chat with him sometime, but he was definitely a bad kid. He's got some stories. So we are kind of an interesting pairing of yin and yang in that sense of very different backgrounds and me from the north and from the suburbs. And he's from South Carolina. And I think he said he's had like 29 people in his high school graduating class. And he's always very proud to proclaim that he graduated at the bottom of that class. But (laughs) somehow we still both ended up in graduate school together. And here we are doing this crazy stuff. Level the
1: playing field. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Where did your love of design come from? Did it start for you when you were young?
0: Definitely when I was young. A couple things. I was like the art kid all throughout, certainly high school and middle school, and even to some extent before that. And I remember when I was really young, before I was even in grade school, that I really loved making books and comic books. And so like my Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters, like all those things from like the mid to late 80s, early 90s when I was growing up. My mom and dad still have these, but they would take a bunch of eight and a half by 11 paper, fold it in half. And then they would take a, back in the day, used to when my dad would get beer or, or soda, they'd come in like the cardboard thing. It wasn't like a fully encased thing, but it was just like a flat if it's maybe 24. Oh, yeah Mm cans. And so they would cut that up and then fold that over. That was the cover. And so I'd make these illustrations of Ghostbusters or Ninja Turtles, whatever. And then I was kind of that nerd. I was very shy and quiet. If you told my high school self or especially middle school self that I would have the courage to stand in front of crowds of 1,500 people and speak. I remember trying to do book reports when I was in eighth grade, and it was all I could do to stand in front of the class for two minutes. Late middle school, early high school, I started getting interested in web design. I didn't know that it was web design. I just was interested in making websites. So I made stuff about video game characters, Sonic the Hedgehog, stuff like that. And in retrospect, I should have known that, oh, this is a career path that I could go down, but I would create the website and fill it with content. But then ultimately what I would end up doing is redesigning it and redesigning it and redesigning it. So it was like this constant iterative process of, oh, I made this thing. I'm not really happy with it. I'll try again. I'll do another variation of it. I'll try again. I'll do another variation of it. And I would just spend all this time moving this here and there, but I didn't know anything about design or typography or grid structures, but I was poking around in the dark in that sort of realm.
1: You already had that kind of intuitive knowing. You weren't thinking about what you were doing. You were just doing what you love to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so.
1: Wow. Oh, that's so wild. So you talked about being in college and doing design. Mm -hmm. So if we fast forward to that time and after you completed your undergrad, you went to Kent State University in Ohio. And then after that, you've had this glimmer in high school about what you love to do. And then you go to Kent State and you do your undergrad. When you finish that, is your path after that really rosy and well laid out? You're just like, oh, cool. This is <laughs> what I'll do going forward.
0: No, not at all. It <laughs> seemed like it was going to be that way at the time, but I had the great privilege of interning with the top design studio in Pittsburgh while I was in undergrad. And after my first summer there, the owner offered me a job for when I graduated, which was unprecedented. What actually ended up happening was the economy tanked. And they were like, hey, we haven't had to let anybody go, but we also just can't hire anybody right now. So that sort of offer is on hold until the economy picks up. And I came back home and I kind of had this arrogance about, okay, well, I graduated top of my class as one of the top 10 people. I worked really hard. I had this great internship and I made these great connections. And I finished undergrad and I come home and I'm in my bedroom, just like when I was 17, before I went to college and I ended up waiting tables. And then I got an offer to work for a studio in Cleveland freelancing. I was like, yeah, sure. Let's make this happen. So I left the waiting job, the serving job, and I went out to Cleveland and I didn't exactly have the money for an apartment and also didn't have like proof of employment because I'm freelancing. So I'm self-employed. So all of that was complicated. And basically what I did for those three, four months was I would sleep on somebody's couch for the week. I would drive to Cleveland and I would work and I would come home six, seven o'clock at night, go to sleep, wake up, do the same thing. On weekends, I would go home and do my clothes. But I basically just lived out of a suitcase and a briefcase. And then they asked me to stay on. And so I got an apartment. At that point, I had enough money that I could put down a good security deposit and show bank statements of like, okay, I'm self-employed. Here's the regular, my weekly check, et cetera, et cetera. And was okay. it
1: a good check? Are you happy with the amount that you're getting at this point? Coming, Oh, yeah. I was, I
0: was like, I had never made that kind of money before. It was okay. like well above minimum wage even now. So it was just like, oh, my God, I'm like an adult actually earning money. Then they offered me to stay longer, but it was a verbal agreement. And they had me finish the project that I was on and then let me go. I finished that project. I sent the files off to the printer. And then they called me upstairs and they were like, sorry, we don't have any more work for you. And I was like-
1: That must've been devastating.
0: Yeah. I was like, I just got an apartment. What the hell am I supposed to do? Trying to move towards this, like, I'm a responsible adult phase, but that didn't happen. So I skulked back to my apartment and I reached out to the director at the design program in Kent and um, said like, hey, I hear that sometimes you have people that have graduated teach classes in Photoshop, Adobe products, et cetera, because you can't screw students up too bad if you're not a well-seasoned teacher by teaching the technology courses. And she was like, yeah, yeah, we'll have people that have completed their degrees or familiar with the program come and do that. Why don't you come in for an interview like in two weeks and we'll do that? So I was like, okay, great. So I went back, I spent a little bit of time at my parents' house just trying to put my tail between my legs after these multitude of false starts. And I left my parents' house. I literally walked in the door and my cell phone rang and my mom called and she said, your dad had a stroke, you have to come back. And so I went back for my interview like a week later and ended up getting the job. And so what I ended up doing for the fall semester that year and then a portion of the spring semester is I taught the same class twice. And then I would leave Thursday night, I would go back to Pittsburgh, I would spend Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday with my parents because my dad was recovering from stroke. And then Monday night, I would leave and I would go back to the university and then I would teach Tuesday, take Wednesday off, teach Thursday, go back to Pittsburgh Friday. In the spring, the director said like, hey, if you really enjoy teaching, you need to get a master's degree, kind of like nudge, like you should apply for the master's program here. Okay, so what did end up happening is that original studio in Pittsburgh came back and said they're ready to hire in the fall and so then i had this decision of well it's what i wanted like i wanted to grow up and be a real boy and earn money and everything but then i think it was two days away from each other i had received the acceptance letter for graduate school and they said we're ready to hire are you interested and then i was like what do i do
1: I can't even imagine what's going on in your head at this stage. And then you get the magic moment that you've ridden this wild roller coaster. You get the two options. Right. And then how do you choose? How did that happen for you? Did you listen to your gut? What happened in that moment?
0: I had lots of conversations with lots of people about it who I admire and respect. Like I talked with my, my martial arts teacher, who's always been a mentor in my life, and my parents, and I talked to over with the people from the studio, and they were actually more encouraging of me going to graduate school. And I also remember that was when I met my business partner, Jason Bacher, but he had started graduate school while I was teaching that spring. And so then we were both interacting a lot more frequently than we would have otherwise. And I remember As I was trying to make this decision, standing in the graduate room, I looked across the room at him and I just thought, I had this strange feeling of, if I don't make this decision to stay here, I'm going to miss something significant with this person and I don't know what it is. I just had the the voice in your head or divine intervention, whatever woo woo thing you want to call it. There was just this overwhelming feeling of, "Mm, this is the direction you need to go. So that was, I went to graduate school. Oh,
1: wow. And that feeling, that kind of intuitive pull, do you think that's quite something that you see in a lot of creatives? Do you think that something that is connected to being a creative is being very intuitively connected or guided? Or maybe not. You might be like, no, absolutely Um,
0: not. I think creatives probably have an easier time accessing that if they decide to. But I think that that's something that everybody has. And I think that people don't pay enough attention to it. And I think that it could be encouraged more as children and teenagers and even as adults develop is the more that you spend time paying attention to that, the better you'll be at using it like anything else. But if you always ignore it, or you suppress that part of yourself, then it's always like really unclear as to am I feeling a gut instinct this way? Is this or am I like responding to a fear thing? And you can't clearly differentiate that. And I I don't mean to imply that I've come anywhere close to mastering it or that I think that it's super clear all the time, but it is something that's like a muscle. You exercise it, you get better at using it. I think that it can definitely inform your process for creative work. I think that one of the things that we do in our workshop with this idea is like taking that intuition and how do you apply that to the rest of your life? The way you do anything is the way you do everything. So like if you open this area up here, it's going to flood out into the rest of your life in beneficial ways.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've taken a lot of that into your workshops, which we'll talk about because I'm really interested to hear how you brought that into your workshops. But you've talked about meeting Jason, being at grad school. We've talked about GFDA. But for you, was starting good fucking design advice, was it really obvious or did you just stumble into it?
0: No, we just stumbled into it. (laughs) We were both teaching. So we would get coffee afterwards. On this one particular day, we walked to the Starbucks that was off camp. On the walk back, we were talking about how to engage students, and it wasn't like it necessarily a serious conversation, like, oh, let's really try to solve this. It was just more like, of course, we have students at seven o'clock in the morning, and of course, they're not paying attention. It's like, makes sense. Mm. But we were sort of just having this intellectual banter about, well, how could we engage our students and being playful with it? And it said, well, we came up with a bunch of really bad ideas, but ultimately it was like, well, we could just put a bunch of design axioms in a website and make the logo smaller, use Helvetica, whatever, but that could be a fun thing to do. But then, our students don't pay attention to us anyway, so we may as well not make it. So why would they come to the website? Why would they take that extra step? And then we're like, well, what's the one thing we technically can't do in the classroom? Profanity. We swear. Like anybody who's run out of ideas, would just resort to profanity. Like, oh, <laughs> <"That'll> work. <laughs> and so we thought it was funny, like a couple of 10-year-olds. And we went back to the graduate studio and kind of did one of those things where you take your forearm on your desk and you Shove all the work and it all falls off like coffee cups break and like cracked our knuckles and like, OK, let's put this together. It sounds really funny. Wow. And So we did. We built it in the course of like a day and there's no business intentions behind it. It was just funny to us. And we didn't care yeah. if anybody else liked it. It was just a thing to do to alleviate the stress of teaching and the responsibility of graduate school and all the things that have been going on in our both of our personal lives. It was like, let's just make this thing. made us laugh. So we made it in less than... It was nine o'clock by the time that we had gotten back. And by five o'clock that day, we decided to launch the website. It had 25 pieces of advice on it. It was super simple, one page. And we posted it online and shared it with like collective 20, 30 friends on Facebook and didn't even say that it was us like, Hey, check this out. And then that night, like we went to some meeting on campus after that. And then we came back to the graduate studio at midnight and we had hooked up Google analytics. So we looked and it was Oh, 500 people showed up. That's wow. crazy. That's a lot. We never see that much to our personal portfolio sites, like in a day, Yeah. Like, lucky if you get five people a month. So then we're like, wow, this is crazy. Like we've peaked. So the next day, Always like back to normal graduate school responsibilities teaching and then at midnight we're like okay well let's get together and meet and we'll check out our analytics again and so the next day it was like six thousand people like oh well, wow like, that's crazy and then so third day we went and looked at midnight it was like seventy thousand like oh holy shit what do we do wow uh oh now what
1: <laughs> exactly now what because you obviously have you're onto something
0: right right it's just it went viral and through no deliberate effort of our own. And so then we started getting emails. We got a lot of hate mail, which is great. I think the Tibor Kalman quote is if nobody hates it, then nobody loves it. So we kind of took solace in that. But we also got a whole bunch of really positive emails and people that were like, oh, I want products. I want a t-shirt with this on it or a poster. And so then it was like, oh, okay, well, maybe we should give that to them. So... (laughs) It took about a week or two, but we built, we attempted to build an online store and then failed miserably at that and had a friend of ours, Ricky, cleaned up all the errors that we made trying to build the store. We launched the store, but we didn't have the products, right? We just made them up like, oh, we'll make a poster and a t-shirt. And so we made the poster in, in design and then made a JPEG of it and put it on the website, faked it like, oh, here's this Real poster that we're selling, and we used to give presentations. with jokes that like we sold people pixels and math because there was no real product. We didn't have money to make product, so we did a pre-sale, which was at the recommendation of my friend Jason, well, my business partner at the time, Jason, and one of his friends. And yeah, so we launched the store and offered product. Poster and t-shirt was the first thing. We basically gave ourselves a month for production, I and mean, we offered a discount on you know our debate to buy during the first two weeks, and we made uh, just shy of like ten thousand dollars. Wow. Um, And for us, it was like, for sure. oh, we have so much beer money. Like, what are we going to (laughs) do? But yeah, so it was like, oh, well, this is really serious now. This isn't 15 people bought something. This is like hundreds. Now what the hell do we do? (sighs) Yeah. And then there was any number of things that calamity that occurred trying to get the posters printed and shipped and everything else. It was a good challenge to see from the universe to see if we were like up for this, like, oh, you think you want to be a business owner, huh? okay, well, here's a shitstorm of stuff that you- You uh, got
1: so much stuff. Like reading that in your book was amazing, reading about all the details of what happened for you. Like, I think shitstorm is a perfect word to describe that. It was massive learning for you, wasn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we just didn't know what we were getting into. It's like, oh, okay, we'll do this. Which has largely been the ethos of GFDA is we're willing to figure it out. We're willing to step into that unknown. And that's kind of the motto of our workshop is that creativity is only valuable because- you don't know what the outcome is going to be. If you don't know what the outcome is going to be, then you have to be okay with being uncomfortable and okay with mistakes and missteps along the way as you hone your path toward whatever this creative thing is that you're doing or any industry jargon, innovation, et cetera. Because if you know what the outcome is, then it's already been done and it's not particularly creative. So not that there's anything wrong with that Lots of people have to open donut shops and they follow whatever the data statistical model is. If I put my donut shop next to the Starbucks, Target, Kohl's thing, then this population demographic, I'll get this sort of return. That's all well and good, but that's not creativity in its purest sense or industry disruption, innovation.
1: Mm. Because I've read from you, too, which was quite interesting, is hearing that nothing inspires creativity more than obstacles. Which is quite interesting, because you're actually living that. You're really living that creativity. You're taking massive risks, like everything. And I can see how it all eventuates to the end point of what you're doing. But you're in this place where you are taking massive risks. And it's really pushing you to be as creative as possible. And it makes so much sense. I would imagine because you're learning so much along the way about failure and about oh yeah like so much, which actually makes sense because that's the word, the other favorite f word on your website and everything that you do and talk about is around failure. And it, you guys have lived it. Is that why it's such a cornerstone for you? It's because like you've learned through that process?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And I think it's also it's humbling because a lot of the things that we failed at were not complicated things, really. Like if you really sit down and think about it, if you had the time, you sit down and say like, okay, I'm going to sell products online. And you spent a couple days, you would arrive at, solving some of the problems, obviously not all, but in advance, you'd be like, oh, well, it's ship internationally. Like what sort of information do I need for that? I think also there's such a difference in the way that the internet was 10 years ago versus now yeah. and just how people utilize Google search and how much information is available. And nowadays there's Shopify and there's all these websites that allow you to sell product on an e-commerce platform. We were, I'd say, fairly ground level in that. We used initially a big cartel, which was like kind of the. I mean, I'm sure there were others, but it's kind of like the only one that was big enough to know anything about. And so there just wasn't the wealth of information that there is now. So a little bit of grace for our younger selves.
1: Absolutely. And it sounds like you have learned a ton through that process as well, too. And it has been such a basis of what GFD is all about too. And I don't know, I think there's something really important about a business that has the ability to be really humble at its core. Mm. And I remember reading, which I loved, is that you said even like one of your biggest pitches that you gave, you weren't like you weren't in a suit in an office, like giving this very professional pitch. It was like, it was a much more cash pitch for you, wasn't it?
0: Oh, yeah. When we landed nike as a workshop client It was actually the very first we had done some workshops before but they were very design oriented and they were geared towards college graduate students we had been giving lectures and then somebody who said like hey do you do workshops would you be willing to work with our students for a weekend and we're like oh i guess this is another thing that we could offer and so for two three years we had done design workshops and they were good we always got positive feedback from them but they didn't feel particularly unique to us And we also kind of felt like the topics and information we were covering, like maybe students responded to it, but it was like the same information they should have or would have been receiving from their teachers. Maybe they just thought like, oh, here's these cool design guys that swear a lot. I'll listen to them more. Or maybe we would just like anything in learning. Somebody just says it the right way that someone else has been trying, like your teacher's been trying to explain to you for like two years. And then somebody just says it a little differently, a slightly different word. And you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about. So I think that there was that quality to our design workshops previously, but we did start to feel like, okay, well, we're not practicing graphic designers day in and day out. It is a component of what we do. And we're certainly formally trained in teaching and we've got clients, but it doesn't feel like unique to GFDA. So we kind of beat our heads against the wall for six, nine months trying to figure out like, okay, well, if we were to do a workshop that was uniquely GFDA that no one else was really doing, like, what would that be? We eventually came on this idea of our whole background and experience has been as you said failure and taking risks and yeah. kind of looked around on the internet and like no one's doing workshops about risk taking at least in terms of like its application to creativity and we said like okay well there's the art of risk taking no one else has that name let's use that and we wrote a paragraph and put it on the website we didn't decide on any exercises or whatever just like here's this idea we'll put it up there and see if anybody bites wow and we get this phone call like i was visiting a friend i was like on like a working vacation i was visiting a friend in louisville and he's like, got a pool and we're drinking margaritas and I get this phone call and I'm standing in his kitchen with my swimsuit on like, hello. <laughs> and, you know, I'm listening to this guy and trying to be like, okay, he's like, oh, you know, I would seen your poster and I bought it. And then I'm planning this summit meeting for my team and saw your workshop on the website and just wonder if you could tell me about what you do. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, we've been workshops for a couple of years, like lying, but not exactly. It's a lie of omission, right?
1: Massaging the truth. Right,
0: exactly, exactly. I said, but typically we'll customize our workshops for our clients, which ultimately ended up being true, but was a bit of, I don't know what the hell we're going to do. So I asked him like what he was looking for and needed. And I was like, oh, that's all exactly the things that we do. (laughs) We had a call with him and then Jason and I talked about it and then we're like, well, how much do we charge and whatever else? And so we tepidly put out what for us at the time was like a really high number. And they were like, okay, oh shit, we've got to build this workshop in like five weeks. What the hell are we going to do? We have a day-long workshop at Nike's headquarters with 60 people. What are we going to do? So we developed, I mean, it took lots of back and forth and banging their heads against each other. And we came up with the first iteration of our workshop, which was, in retrospect, I think it was terrible. I mean, they didn't think so at Nike. We had pulled exercises. We had some things that we created, pulled exercises from things that we had experienced or from school or whatever. And so we put this Frankenstein monster together. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, there was a lot of laughter and, and everything in the experience. It was good enough that they had us come back for a second one and we did a different, but that was sort of the start of the risk-taking workshop for us. And then in 2017, Jason Bacher left the business. Formally, we have a good relationship. It was just he was interested in exploring options as like an independent creative director and wasn't Mm. as excited about all the administrative duties that have come with running GFDA. So he left, and then I brought Jason Richburg on. So there's our three co-authors on the book to help initially with the workshop, but also ultimately ended up being the primary writer of the book and the primary author of our content. Which for me it was like a transitory point for GFDA. Like when Jason. Bacher left, like we were in a substantial amount of debt at that point. Like we hadn't managed our finances particularly well. Our product sales were slumping. We were really only getting money from a small amount of client work. And then we would occasionally land a workshop or a lecture, and that would we'd pay off a bunch of debt and then come backwards. Like we would get like this large sum of money from Nike, but then we didn't actually like neither of us personally saw it because we had just so poorly managed all these other aspects of the business. At that point, it was like, Okay, well, I need to pivot like how we're thinking about things. And I felt fairly strongly that going back to the advice and the content was really going to be the way, if there was a way forward, that would be the way forward, managed to land the book contract the end of 2017, early 2018. And then that spun up like the whole next iteration of where GFDA has gone in the last two years and where it's going now.
1: Sounds like you're living that real truth of it, being in that place of learning consistently, getting feedback from what's happening to push you more and more into what most people hide from, which is being in a place that isn't a comfort zone. It feels uncomfortable. Like you're being comfortably uncomfortable or being comfortable in the uncomfortable to push yourself to be more creative. Because did you think in 2010 that you would write a book?
0: No. The most that we had asked for from the universe, once things took off and after the first maybe six months or so, and we had had this ridiculous experience with printing the posters and we had like all this problems with sourcing and shipping mugs and it was just one crazy story after another. Jason and I sat down and we were like, even if we don't earn any money from this personally or recognition, it would be great to go somewhere just once and talk about it and to tell people like this ridiculous thing that we lived through, mm-hmm. that these problems that we set up for our future selves and then had to figure out how to solve. And we got that wish it took about a year and a half for our first lecture. And then we got to do that a lot. Mm-hmm.
1: art of risk taking as a workshop is fascinating because for me, you're doing this not just for creatives anymore because that's the thing that you pushed into. Mm-hmm. You started connecting more with people who are entrepreneurs and you've said like the military and yoga teachers and your community of people that you're connecting with is a much wider audience. And now you're doing this workshop. To help people to what it sounds like, to become more comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that, Ren, it comes to like taking risks that I've always thought that that was something that you gradually have to learn over time. But you're teaching this in a short period of time in a workshop without giving away the workshop. What is the process like for doing that?
0: Unlike the first couple iterations of the workshop that we had done, like with Nike and some other clients, was like, okay, like how can we really make this a meaningful and a much deeper experience? It has to be fun and engaging, but then how can we aim for at least some form of personal transformation as a result of this experience? Some of those ideas were very well thought out and deliberate, and others were just spur of the moment ideas that made us laugh and then we sort of would reverse engineer like, okay that's a really funny idea for an exercise, but then how can we make that a meaningful experience? And how can we talk about that? And how can we show the relevance of this abstracted experience to somebody for their personal and professional life? The two things we talk about is like risk imposition versus risk acceptance and understanding that. And that particularly when you talk to creatives, what I think is there's certainly the individual becoming more familiar with risk-taking, but Creatives, if you go for like the strict, okay, I'm a creative, I work at an agency, and then I have to propose a visual concept for a client or a campaign or something like the creative is very comfortable taking risks in their domain, but they don't know what it's like Mm -hmm. for the client, they impose the risk on the client and the client has to accept that risk and trust the designer. But for the creative to develop a degree of empathy for what the client has to do, that's part of why we have non-skill-based exercises because it's, yeah. we don't want anybody to feel comfortable with the things that we're having them do. We want them to be very unusual and very abstracted from the normal everyday work experience. And then they have this experience where they're uncomfortable and they manage through the process and there's laughter. And then we talk about, okay, what was that like? And then we draw this comparison, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So <laughs> if you found these aspects challenging here, then this is showing up in your personal life. In your professional life. What are some things that you can do to work through that? Because you can see the benefit, you can see how much fun you had, you can see the really smart ideas that you came up with and how you work through that process.
1: Wow, that's amazing to be able to help people experience something that they're either afraid of, or for some people, they probably have never really felt that or they shy away from it. So to be able to help them do that, in their whole lives is quite fascinating because taking risks and being uncomfortable is something that people shy away from so much.
0: Yeah, and I think that in a broader life and philosophical context, our culture is as flawed as it is. It's so great because we get to be so comfortable all the time, like all the time, live in a temperature regulated house, and you've got a bed to sleep in every night and not to diminish anybody's personal challenges or whatever cards they've been dealt. But by and large, we're all really lucky. And so we don't have to push ourselves or challenge ourselves day in and day out. But I think that it's a very natural thing for us. It's how we learn and how we grow and it's life itself. And so by learning to accept risk and to enter into that more is like a parallel. It's tied. It's like accepting life and like just going out and doing things. And it's so much more engaging and exciting and fulfilling that way than to just sit at home all the time and see what the next thing is on Netflix, unless, of course, you're in the middle of a pandemic. But
1: yeah, that's very true. It's that comfort. We become complacent and to be able to step into that place of being uncomfortable. And I think that's it's funny as you say that. I think that's why there's such an uptake right now on people doing things like Wim Hof method and being in the cold and doing Mm -hmm. intermittent fasting. It's almost like we're slightly craving that little bit of discomfort. So it's interesting that you're actually teaching that in a workshop. And that's amazing for businesses to actually bring you in to do that. What is it that you want them to get at the other end of it?
0: What we generally have happen with our workshops so we usually have like a follow up 2 3 weeks later with leadership. In the immediate aftermath of the workshop as we're cleaning up and putting things away, we will have people come up to us and say like thank you so much this is something that I would have never done in any other circumstance and like really stepped out of my comfort zone and so in a lot of instances we have especially when we're working with creative agencies like we'll have the shy software developers that are by the end of the workshop the most outspoken and then when we have calls with leadership two three weeks later they'll be like oh you know joe from the dev team is like now he's sitting with people and talking and sharing ideas more in meetings and things like that. So part of it is, can we put people, since we're typically working with studios, agencies, corporations, like people that work with each other all the time, it's like, can we provide an experience that's a little bit of like a crucible experience that brings people together? So if everything else were to fail, even if it was, which we've never had like a complete catastrophe workshop, some close, but that's a different story, But these people have this very challenging experience together and whether any individual exercise was successful for them or they completed it properly or not, like, the overall gestalt of the experience is that the teams have experienced this crucible and are have done weird things and are, are like a tighter knit group of people together and hopefully also have an appreciation for the diversity of experience and roles that they have to work with at work. And so if we can hit that mark in some capacity, then that's kind of our feeling of we've had a success.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that would make a massive shift in a business place to have people feeling really empowered. And then also what you're doing, which I love, is that And something that I'm very passionate about is community. And you're actually bringing the team together so they do feel like more, not just feeling just like a community, but that they can lean on each other and that they have each other's backs and that they understand their strengths and their weaknesses, which is very powerful for a business, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, and especially minus COVID times, and a lot of businesses come to us when they're trying to get a greater cohesion within teams, or they've made like a major pivot. And so they kind of need to get everybody on board. And we're always encouraging of sometimes we'll have like somebody from a specific department call and say like, Oh, we want you to come in for our creative department or whatever. But then we'll say like, if it's possible, can you get with people in sales and in marketing and some of these other adjacent departments that these people work with? Because then everybody has this shared experience. And maybe Maybe you're not always working with person in sales or marketing day in and day out, but then there's this camaraderie that exists. And I think that was something that unintentionally we took away from our experience with Nike because they were bringing in with our second workshop, a number of different people from different roles so that everybody could share the same cultural values, even though like with our second workshop, it wasn't all the marketing people or all the creative people. It's like, we need a in accounting to understand what Josette in creative is doing. And so that even though accounting is not typically a risk-taking field, it's like we need to have the shared cultural idea of what it takes to be creative and innovative and at the forefront of the market and constantly pushing ourselves forward so that everybody's, we all get
1: it. After someone finishes listening to this podcast and they hear your story and they hear about the uncertain but quite magical road that you've been down and how you face challenges and talk about risk-taking and standing for innovation, creativity, and definitely around taking risks. Do you have any words of wisdom for someone who's afraid or worried about stepping out of their comfort zone?
0: You just do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I know that there's probably, uh, should I feel along. like someone got that. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, I, I think I, I've heard of them before. I think that you can do all the intellectualizing about it that you want, but it becomes like so much of an analysis paralysis. You've got to go out there and you have to take the first step and you have to give yourself the flexibility, like whatever you're going to do is going to be wrong and you're going to make mistakes and it's going to be failure. But like you're setting out on the way and there's, I can't remember if it's a Taoist or a Buddhist quote, but as you go out on the way, the way appears. So it's, you just have to start moving forward. You just have to start taking those steps and then... And things will happen and then you'll have information to make decisions and then you can like turn a little bit or pivot or whatever. But if you just stand in place, then you definitely won't go anywhere. It's both easier and harder than it sounds because it is just doing it. But I also recognize, I mean, and it's not like I know that I get to go and lecture and workshop about this, but it's not easy for me either. And I think that that's an important thing to take away is that whoever your idols are, or whoever you look to in in this kind of realm, it's like, they don't feel any differently about it than you. They're just as scared but they're just moving forward and doing it anyways. And so I was talking to one of my friends because I work out and I, we've talked, I do martial arts quite a bit and I make time to train every day. And he was like, we were talking and I was like, ah, God, like I got trying to pull myself together to go work out. And he's like, you don't just like excitedly run downstairs and work out every day. And I'm like, fuck no, of course not. It is an internal battle every single day, every single time, but I make the decision to do it. And then like, once you start, then it's, this isn't so bad. It's like, I'm doing it now. But you can spend all this time like, oh, you know, whatever. And I think that people that struggle with that more than others think that somebody else is like, oh, this is so easy. It's like, oh, it's easy to get up early to go work out or it's easy to take these risks. Like, no, it's not. It's really hard. You just have to do it.
1: I really appreciate you saying that. It's interesting that when you see, especially for you guys, because you are people who are taking a stand for getting shit done and pushing through your discomfort and your emails do that every day. Like you are the people that are the inspiration for other people. And so I think that there is a misconception that you're just out there like, this is all so super easy. It's great to hear that you are also someone who is just pushing along as much as we all are.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's why that content works is because it comes from a place of experience not from a place of superiority or anything like that it's it is the daily struggle that we contend with ourselves and a lot of ways we're always writing for our audience but it's from our lived experience it's just that's how we do also like to add on to that we've been privileged to meet all sorts of really amazing people famous folks in the design industry and entrepreneurs and so forth and been in some cases it's just in passing in other cases it's much more intimate like maybe had dinner with them or phone calls or mentorship or whatever. And you meet these people that are your idols and they're like, oh yeah, this is really fucking hard for me too. You're like, oh, thank God. So it's, I don't care who it is. I never had a chance to meet him, but I'm sure if you sat down and you had an intimate conversation with Steve Jobs or somebody like Johnny Ive, I'm sure that they would tell you the same thing because I haven't found anybody that's like, oh yeah, it's fucking easy. Like I got this on lockdown. What's your problem? Like, definitely not.
1: Hmm. That's a really great point to end on. Thank you, Brian. And as we wrap up, I'm got quick speedy questions for you in a speed round. Are you ready? All
0: right, let's go. I'll see if I can not talk quite <laughs> okay. so much. Favorite movie. It's called Yojimbo. It is a Japanese samurai film from the uh, 50s. I want to say the mid to late 50s. They're Kira Kurosawa films, which are like he's like the master of Japanese cinema, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, etc.
1: Okay. Is there anything that you do differently in your life?
0: About the whole thing. <laughs> I can't do anything right.
1: (laughs) Would you change anything or just keep it all the same?
0: No, I would keep it all the same.
1: Fill in the blank for me. Being creative is... Difficult. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, Brian and DA. It's such an incredible leader in the, I want to say the creative industry, but it's really, it's not just creative. It's just in the industry of being able to support and help people push through their boundaries and to understand that to get what it is that they want in life, that it's about pushing through the discomfort, going into those places that might not be comfortable, but what comes on the other side of that is incredible. So thank you for creating such a brave, visionary inspiring business and to continue to push your own barriers too thank you thank you yeah and if you want to find out more about gfda you can visit seekerloverdreamer.com and you can find everything about gfda you can find them you can follow them you can get their amazing emails which every day in your inbox is like a little sparkle of joy it's amazing so thank you so much for your honesty today and for your transparency and really for showing people the magic of Taking risks. So, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. Okay.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye. That's Brian Birch, owner and creative director of GFDA and co author of Do the Effing Work Lowbrow Advice for High Level Creativity. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show and for joining me in exploring the upside of the unexpected. To see that life isn't a straight line, And thank goodness, because that is where the magic in life lies. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast, and you can find all the links and resources from this episode in the episode notes. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to head over to iTunes to rate and leave a review. Or if there's someone you think would benefit by hearing this episode, be sure to share it with them. If you have any feedback or want to send me a note, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send me a DM on Instagram at didn't see that coming underscore underscore. I'm Zoe Weldon, and you've been listening to Didn't See That Coming. Until next week, keep looking for the magic on the other side of the unexpected.